This is the Social Leader Podcast, made for entrepreneurs, business owners, faith leaders, community advocates, volunteers, trailblazers, innovators, and visioneers from every walk of life. Social leaders strive to move beyond charity in order to integrate and then operationalize their social priorities. They forge sustainable solutions in order to solve our community's most tangled problems. Social leaders are, my friends, the most creative, most important leaders in our time because they are striving to lead with greater social impact in order to change our world. Welcome, my friends, to episode number 21 of The Social Leader. I'm your host, Father Justin Matthews. And hey, really quickly, before we begin, I want to let you know that today's podcast is presented by Reconciliation Services, a nonprofit social venture here in Kansas City working to cultivate a community seeking racial and economic reconciliation so that we can reveal the strength of all. You can find out more about Reconciliation Services programs and even support our work at rs 3101.org. Well, let's jump into our program today. I am very pleased to welcome my dear friend and the co-founder of Reconciliation Services, Father Alexi Alsho. Welcome, Father. Thank you, Father. It's great to be with you yeah, again. It's, it's wonderful to have you here. And so many people who probably have been watching our videos, if they've gone to Reconciliation Services website or if they've gone to thelmaskitchen.org, they've perhaps seen you on the screen. They've heard a little bit about your work and your story. And I'm just really grateful that you are willing to come down today and talk about your work as a leader here in the community, your work um, with your wife of blessed memory, Thelma Matushka Michaela, and um, for us to get to learn from you a little bit about social leadership and the kind of things that are possible for us even in these trying times. And so, Father, where I really wanted to begin was by just asking you to unpack a little bit of your story. How did you become the leader that you are today? Where did you grow up? And what are some of the things that shaped you as a young man and help you become the leader that you are? Well, thank you, Father. It's an honor to be with you. It's a amazing privilege to be able to continue to participate in this work here and uh, see what's happened at 31st and Truth. Um, I, you asked me when I was young and I was born in Orlando, Florida and um, my dad was in the Air Force. We moved back to Kansas City, his home when he was a little boy and where my mom and dad met um, back when I was nine years old. And then uh, during that period of time, I was raised in Catholic grade school and high school. And um, then uh, in my, my experience, that very pivotal experience was um, when I was uh, 15 years old, my brother, Ted, was uh, killed in Kansas City on Volker and Paseo, which was close to 47th and Paseo, not too far from my, where my grandparents lived. And he was hitchhiking home and some guys picked him up and uh, took his life. And uh, when he was at the, the corner of the street, bleeding, he was asking people to take him to the hospital. And this was in 1969. And out of fear, um, they rolled up the window and then drove on. And by the time he ended up getting to the hospital, he had bled to death. And he was like a, a leader and a guide to me. And that uh, really threw me for a loop. It was like um, um, a deep, deep explosion within my own family. But um, for two years, I, you know, was in a tailspin after that during my high school years. But then um, senior year in high school, I had a very powerful encounter with uh, Jesus Christ, and my life turned around. And um, after that, I ended up, uh, was part of a, a group of young people that had really tried to follow Christ like the early apostles. And eventually that um, led to, um, you know, this, this group reaching out to people in Kansas City and all of that kind of thing. But um, to summarize many years into a, a short period, 
uh, eventually, um, I ended up um, moving out into Leewood, Kansas. And I had uh, become a Protestant pastor, but through marriage stresses and actually a marriage failure during that time that I was in Leewood, I began to look deeper. And um, that, that particular period of my life was um, such that I remembered visiting uh, Linwood and Truce. There's still a 7-Eleven there. And while I was there, this man came limping up to the um, uh, car and I thought that he needed a ride. But it turned out that when he, he had his head down and when he looked up, he had this great smile. It was just magnetic and it drew me right in. And his name was Rollin Evans. And Rollin was an elderly black man that had um, lived in this apartment building at Linwood and Harrison called the LaSalle Apartments. And he invited me to come visit him. But the very interesting thing was that um, he had had a stroke. He spoke with slurred speech. I could hardly understand what he was saying, but I intuitively felt this word from the Holy Spirit that he was to be my teacher. And I remember thinking in my mind, teacher, I can hardly understand what he's saying. But that in itself became this great um, parable for me because shortly after that, um, I had an experience where I went home. When I was praying, I remembered having this picture that came into my mind of two brothers kneeling down and praying. And they were praying, our Father who art in heaven. And when they got to the part, give us this day our daily bread, I saw two loaves coming down from heaven given one to one of the brothers. And then this question came to me, did I answer their prayer? And when I stopped and thought about that, I realized, well, all these years, I would have said something like this, praise the Lord. The Lord just answered my prayer. He gave me two loaves. And I'd say to my brother, listen, keep praying. Before you know it, you're going to get your two loaves. <laughs> right. But then the other way was the way of St. John the Baptist, Jesus, the early Christians, where it, he said, let him that's, that has two coats share with him that has none. Let him that has food do likewise. And that simple mental picture that came to me in prayer became a very pivotal change for me because it changed me from me to we. Because I realized it wasn't my Father who is in heaven, it was our Father who is in heaven. And then give us this day our daily bread. So when I went back a few days later to the LaSalle apartments, I couldn't find Rollin that day, but I did find a lady, another elderly lady. Her name was Mother Esther. And um, she was a, a mother in the AME church, the African Methodist Episcopal Church. And um, she was very frail, but very excited and motivated. But it turned out she hadn't eaten for two days. She takes me upstairs to another lady. This was an elderly white lady. And on her table was a can of pork and beans. That's all she had to eat. This was 1984. At the time, I had, uh, was a regional vice president of a financial services company living in Leewood, and it struck me, this dichotomy. And I knew, of course, the scriptures that said, you can't just say, peace, be warmed and be filled, go on your way. And so this became a big change in my life because we began, I gathered a group of friends, we began to take food down there to this uh, apartment building. One day, a little nine-year-old boy came up to me and he pulled at my uh, suit coat and he said, my grandma don't have no food. And so I said, okay, we'll take some up to, the, to, to her. So we go upstairs and turned out that her daughter was there. Her name was Sherlyn. So she said, oh, you can put it right here in the refrigerator. And sure enough, we opened the refrigerator. There wasn't any food there. So then later I went back downstairs she told me her name was Thelma Coppage. That was the name of her mother. So this lady came walking in, five foot tall, um, small, uh, energetic, 
with her daughter. And I looked at her and she looked just like her daughter upstairs. And I said, is your name Thelma Coppage? Now, mind you, I had just come from um, an insurance and an investment appointment. I had a three-piece suit, suit on. And she said, how'd you know my name? And uh, she was wondering, are you FBI? Who are you? You know what I mean? Because it's, who's this white man in a three-piece <laughs> suit coming down here? And I started laughing. Right. And I said, no, no, no. Your daughter told me because we brought some food up there. So things relaxed. But that Thelma Coppage was um, the very person that had ended up becoming eventually Thelma, who reconciliation services had started Thelma Kitchen and who became my wife. And um, the it's it's an amazing story. But when you when you stop and you think about these things, here I was from a you know a background that had I'd been raised with uh, racial stereotypes and and racist ideology to all of a sudden move to this position. So and it's it's a story of transformation that's ongoing. You know, it's it's I don't ever view ourselves as stopping and we've arrived. This is an ongoing thing, but it's uh, it's been an incredible experience and I'm still learning and growing. Well I- Tell me how your family or, you know, I know you were part of a church community in Kansas City when you left um, really wealthy Leewood and when you started embracing um, and falling in love with Thelma, who many of us also knew as Mother Michaela or Matushka Michaela later. But when you started to fall in love with her um, and eventually got married, what was the reaction of family or of the church and other community around you when you did that? Well, uh, that's, it's a painful chapter. Um, I called up my dad and I said, dad, uh, I'm going to be getting remarried. And he knew about some of my work at that time in the inner city. And he said, I have one question. Is she black or white? I said, she's black. And he said, if you go through this, you'll be as dead to me as your brother, Ted. And of course, that was the brother that got killed in 69. And um, so I tried to plead with him a bit and talked with my stepmother. But um, my dad was a very committed person. And uh, if he believed something, he was committed to it. And so we had reached a stalemate because I was convinced that we were to get married, we did get married, and he disowned me. Um, friends prior to that, uh, including pastors, were very respectful and kind, but they, I remember going to a meeting where they gathered me together and they said that we wanted to talk to you because we really feel like that you're making a big mistake. Um, this was before we got married. And they said that she's, um, you know, you're not of the same educational background. You're not of the same um, uh, uh, class. You're not in the same um, um, place with um, your, you're being raised. We think that this is gonna be a problem in your ministry. So I went uh, after that and I, you know, believed in this idea of respecting your brothers and trying to fit in with them. Um, so I went, um, and shared with her what these had said. And I was wondering, do you think that we should postpone this or put it off? And, you know, she began to weep and, and cry because she was like, you know, very committed to what we both believe the Lord wanted us to do. So I said, well, let me go pray. So I walked from, um, Troost over to Maine back again. And I was just crying out to God, Lord, show me what to do. I don't know what to do. What do you want me to do? And when I almost returned back, this, I believe, was a, like a word of wisdom came to me. And I felt in my heart this guidance. You were like Peter. You were walking on the water, but then you began to pay attention to the winds of public opinion, and you began to sink. So I decided at that point, it's time to do it. And so 
we I gathered together um, the this gospel singing group that I had known, Reverend Bennett and Ed Lewis, who were the, the gospel all-stars. And they drove us to the, in the middle of the night to a place where we could go get married. So that next morning we got married. And uh, when I came back three days later, another well-meaning brother in the Lord, he came and um, he felt like he had heard from the Lord that I was like Abraham and I was um, uh, about to sacrifice Isaac, but I didn't have to go through with it. The Lord saw that I was faithful and I didn't have to go through with it. So I said, wow. oh, so what is Isaac? What's, what's my sacrificing Isaac? And he said, you're marrying Thelma. I said, well, you're about three days late because <laughs> we just got married three days ago. What do you think was at the root of all that, Father? I mean, obviously they didn't think that you two should be together. And it, my mind immediately goes to the fact that she was African-American um, and to the fact that you guys came from very different social worlds and, and economic worlds. But as you reflect on it, did you think there was more there or was it just conscious or unconscious bias and racism? I mean, what, what was happening from your father to all these supposed, you know, friends and pastors around you? Oh, well, I mean, the obvious answer to me was the um, bias that's reflected in the culture that we, you know, we still cling to. That's, you know, that, that the paradigm of dominance in our culture is that white is right. And um, so to make room for the, the diversity of human experience, it is, has been a stretch for us. I remember my stepmother saying to me, maybe in a hundred years, people will be ready for this. And yeah, it um, reminds me of the pastors, the so-called moderate pastors that were talking to Dr. Martin Luther King that said, look, we're in support of you, but just slow down, slow down. You know, when he was rotting in a jail in 63 in Birmingham. Yeah. So those were some difficult times. Um, However, I have to say that um, uh, the joy came from being accepted uh, in the black community um, from within. And the sense of family that I experienced among my wife's family. And I remember, you know, oftentimes people talk about going into a, uh, a church where they're the only black person there. My experience for that time was going into a church and I was only the only white person there. And so I would often be coming face to face with all these racist stereotypes in my mind, only to find out that it wasn't like that and encountering the, the joy and the, the beauty of um, family life and family culture and support and acceptance and, and faith. The yeah. faith experience was so palpable and powerful that, I mean, it's beyond description. You know, a I, mean, lot I have of to tell you about my wife. She yeah. was she was like um, such an exceptional person. Uh, the reason that her refrigerator had no food was because regularly people would come to her apartment and she would feed who was ever there, and she didn't have anything. And then she would go out on the streets in the middle of the night and talk to people about the Lord or pray with them and encourage them. Um, you know, during that period of time, she was having a very difficult time. And um, so she herself was, was struggling and overcoming um, substance abuse. But, you know, that, to see that change within such a short period of time and her to move into this uh, place of grace was just a very powerful thing. Um, but when we got married, we had 20 people living with us. And um, 20 people in one house, uh, an apartment or in a small well, house. What? We moved to a very a, a two story house on 34th and Forest. So one block off of Troost, if you're not in Kansas City, on the 
so-called wrong side of the tracks, right? You went from Leewood, this most wealthy place, to now you're married and you're living on Forest Avenue and you have 20 people living with you. But, uh, you know, we never had to watch TV because our life was never boring. <laughs> right. I mean, the, the things that happened during that period of time were just incredible. Um, the, and, and she was just constantly giving and caring and consoling and challenging and, and uh, accepting. It was very, very powerful. Um, I remember we found another place a few years later and we moved over to um, 32nd Terrace. And uh, one Thanksgiving, we just, we were, uh, wanted to give away turkeys. And the Kansas City Chiefs found out that we wanted to give away these turkeys. And so they ended up um, giving us 300 turkeys to distribute out of our house. Wow. And so um, at the end of the day, that day, that Thanksgiving, our house was an absolute wreck because it was like a supermarket in our living room. People coming in and distributing, talking to them, encouraging them, praying right. with them. At the end of the day, we looked at all these broken down boxes and I was exhausted. She was exhausted. And I said, man, we're going to have to find somewhere else to do this. Maybe we can find a place on Troost. So she got her hair done at this little place called the Conference Cove, which was right next to 31st and Troost. And when she was talking to her hairdresser, she said, well, you should talk to Harry. He might be able to um, provide a place. So it turned out that in January of 88, we moved to where Thelma's Kitchen is now. And uh, that became the place where, instead of doing that out of our house, it actually was done from the first two floors of that building. So that was January 88 to, to now, so it's been quite a journey. Well, and also just, you know, such a small world, but the woman who was Thelma's hairdresser is now in our uh, foster grandparents program, I found out. She's been a foster grandparent with Reconciliation Services for a number of years. And I remember meeting her for the first time, I guess this was six, seven years ago, and she said, you know, I was the one who told Thelma and David, when your name was David, to get that, uh, to get that building where you guys are now. And so it's such a, an amazing and tight-knit community. Father, when you talked about um, everyone from Roland to the people that you met in the LaSalle apartments to now, you know, moving forward and doing this work in the community, going to these black churches and being accepted, radically loved as maybe the only white man in there. Um, when you think about all of those teachers, what are sort of one or two lessons that you carry forward with today that that shape your life today from those early years? That's a good question. Well, one of my dear friends that's maintained such kindness to us was Pastor Ray Mabian down on 28th and Forest, the pastor of Bethlehem Christian Assembly. And I remember, I think it was like maybe 88 or 89, we decided to do a, a joint Thanksgiving dinner with um, Pastor Mabian's congregation and uh, the people from what was called Reconciliation Ministries at that time. And there were a lot of uh, volunteers that had begun to join us. And so at the Thanksgiving dinner, there were a lot of people that were fed. And um, so at the end of the day, I was just thinking in terms of outcome, you know, that a lot of people had been fed. And so um, I said to Pastor Mabian, so how did you think it went? And he said, well, a lot of people were fed, and uh, but I could tell that something else was going on. So I said, well, what else, what else happened? What else is going on? And fortunately, we had the kind of a relationship where he was able to be honest with me and help me to see blind spots. And he said, well, a lot of the ladies that had been with you who were white ladies from the suburbs, um, some had moved down to this part, but you know, still had a um, particular mindset that was hard for them to see. They would say things like, oh, 
let me show you a better way to cook that, or let me show you a better way to cut that. And so they began to try to uh, educate these grandmothers and mothers that had been cooking dinners, turkey dinners, ever since they were little girls. So what did they do? They just stepped back and let these white ladies take charge. And when I heard about that, it was this whole thought came to me. We had put efficiency over relationships. What we thought was a more efficient way, rather than simply allowing the, the power of the relationship to be present and to honor the person that had been doing it be, there before us. And so when I heard that, I realized, oh my gosh. And I began to realize how so much of you know, my life, my training, my experience had been, you know, faster is better, or what's a quicker way that we can do this, rather than taking the time to honor the person in front of you. And so the real principle behind this was this leadership principle of Jesus. He that would be first among you, let him be the servant of all. And so out of that, this whole principle of learning to honor the person in front of us, standing together, learning from each other, was a, was a very, very powerful lesson. And so in the midst of it, um, I acknowledged it, but from then on, we tried to train our staff in this whole principle of honoring the person that you're with rather than imposing your opinion, even if you think you can do it faster or better, how is this going to cause the other person to feel? Or what, is, what else is that going to do in terms of you um, giving another message there that their work doesn't count? So that was just one of them. Yeah, no, that's a really powerful story. And one of the things that comes to my mind is somebody had told me one time about, of course, everybody knows about this concept of return on investment. But somebody um, told me then one time about this idea of return on relationship being even greater than return on investment. And that really um, struck a chord with me as I thought about how many times in a rescue mission or a soup kitchen context had I gone down and been so concerned about how many people can I feed um, or how fast can we deliver this service to the greatest number of people, but then really missed the opportunity for a return on relationship. And if there's anything that I've learned in trying to walk in your shoes and Thelma's shoes over these years as I've been uh, here at Reconciliation Services, it's that more than uh, food, what people are really, really hungry for is a relationship. And I wonder how you think that particular bias uh, or that experience relates to what we're going through today. Thinking about the Black Lives Matter movement, thinking about the history of truce in Kansas City, or really the history of any racial and economic dividing line in our country, because you know every city in our country has that dividing line. It was engineered that way. How do you think that this concept of return on relationship or trying to put people before efficiency relates to what we're living through right now as a country? Good question. Well, first, I, I think we have to recognize that there's, there's this opportunity now for change, for deep change. Um, sometimes a word becomes uh, so used in a religious context or in a cultural context that the people stop and they don't hear what it's really being said. Let's take the word repent. Uh, when people hear the word repent, they don't realize that its root means to change, to reorient yourself around the Lord and his ways. And um, when I stop and I think about the work on 31st and Truth, I see it as essentially a work to first change ourselves. And then from there, to be able to help change the community around us. Change in this sense is um, has to be ourselves and then beginning to look to ask, well, what inside of me has been passed on? And one of my favorite verses of Jeremiah the prophet is 
chapter 15, when he said, the Lord said to him, when you can extract the precious from the worthless, then you'll be my spokesman. Yeah, I can remember the first time you shared that verse with me. It was like a verse you, you can read and read and read, and sometimes you're surprised by things it feels like you've never read before. And that particular concept of being a servant by learning to extract the precious from the worthless is has really shaped my leadership here. But let me push back a little bit, Father, because you're talking about repentance. And, you know, there's a lot of people who might be listening who would say, look, you know, I look at what's going on in the racial context. I look at what's going on economically, and it's not my fault. I never owned slaves. I never, you know, I'm not a racist. I'm not somebody who's, you know, wearing a Ku Klux Klan hood. You know, why do I have to repent? What do I have to change up? How do you respond to that, Father? Yeah. Well, first of all, I think it's important to see that in humanity, we're all connected. Jesus didn't come only to save one human being. He came to save humanity, the anthropos, the man that was descended from Adam. Everyone's important to him. And so because of this, when I think about this idea of repentance, it starts with this idea of facing me and then all that was part of me in the past. Because my healing isn't just my healing. It's also the healing of my ancestors and it's also the healing of my my nation. In the book of Leviticus and in the book of Nehemiah, these images were given of confessing my sins and the sins of my ancestors, my parents. And I'm asking God to have mercy upon us. So when we face our sins and those sins that have been passed down to us, again, extracting the precious from the worthless, we realize the many, many wonderful and good things that have been given to us from our parents and our ancestors. But we also were able to find out those things that are with dis were discordant with the original pattern that was given to us from our Creator. And so in that respect, we turn away from those things and we ask God's mercy. And when we think about this nation, I'm mindful. Now, after my wife died, I became a monk. And when I went to um, Mount Athos, which was a peninsula in Greece where monasticism has been there for over a thousand years. I was, when I was getting ready to go back, I had three different monks and one bishop separately tell me these things. They said to me, when you go back and you want to bring orthodoxy in America, the book that you should read especially is burying my heart at wounded knee. It surprised me. I was thinking they were going to give me some classical Christian text to read, but it showed the history of how we had treated the Native Americans. And if you stop and you think about how we treated the Native Americans and then how we treated the African Americans, there's a mindset of fear and power and regarding the other as non-human that has affected us in terms of our policy. And when I, when I stopped and I looked at this, I realized um, I wanna ask God's mercy for myself and all of those that went back in terms of how we first got here. And if you've read the, the history of what we've done to native peoples, read the history of what we did to African people, read the history of what we did to uh, Latinx, and from the history of how we dealt with Asian people, you begin to realize, wow, there's a legacy of kidnapping. There's a legacy of rape. There's a legacy of putting our God as material possessions over people. And all of those have brought deep, deep pain to us as a culture. We don't have to um, act like that those other, the people that did this are separate from us because all that's in us. We all have temptations towards power, towards pride, towards prejudice. But what we do have to do is to struggle with it and we have to face it. And so when I say I want to repent, it's not a situation of shaming you. It's a matter of simply recognizing we're all in this. We're all in this mess together and we have to, have to ask God's mercy. And so where does it begin? Jesus said, unless you remove the log from your own eye, you can't see clearly to help the brother remove the speck from his eye. 
So regardless of where we are on the political spectrum, we have to start with our own human heart because that's where the problem is. And once we start there, creative solutions are going to start to emerge with how to really move again from me to we and be able to bring healing to our country. Father, I, I think about particularly Truist Avenue where you and uh, Thelma labored and lived. I mean, you and Thelma and a lot of other people eventually by about 1991 or somewhere in there, 89 to 91, were actually living in this building, uh, this four-story, 100-plus-year-old brick building at the corner of 31st and Troost, where in 1968 there were you know tanks uh, coming down the street after Dr. King's assassination and all of the history that's been here. But you you spent a lot of time focusing on learning about the Kansas City history that a lot of us don't listen to or haven't heard. And in particular, you spent a lot of time writing and talking and listening to the stories about the 200-year history of Troost. Um, even for those who don't live in Kansas City, how do we think about the history of Troost Avenue? What, what should we know about streets like this all across the country? And how do we apply what we learn about that history to our desire to repent or our desire to at least begin to empathize? How do we understand that history? And what is that history, Father? Well, Troost, it's an interesting word, because in, in Dutch, it's the word that Christ used for the comforter. He will send you the Troost, the comforter, the paraclete. But it was the name of Dr. Benoist Troost, who was one of the early founders of Kansas City, Missouri, a slave owner, who was a doctor from Holland. And um, as I began to research the history of this very corner, and Troost Avenue, I found out that early on, the area around Troost, that would have been Troost, was a trail of the Osage Indians that went down to the Missouri River where they would take their canoes uh, down there. And there was hunting area in this particular area where we are. But then what ended up happening in the uh, 1830s is um, Reverend James Porter moved with his family, and across the street from us at 31st and Troost was a uh, slave plantation that was 365 acres. And so he and his wife had moved from Tennessee with their enslaved persons, and it went from um, essentially 22nd now to 31st, and from Children's Mercy Hospital over to Truce Lake. So if you picture a 365-acre triangle, that was this Porter Plantation. After emancipation, that land continued with the uh, Porter family, and it became prime real estate in Kansas City. So eventually, in the late 1890s, turn of the 20th century, uh, this area became known then as Millionaire's Row. And so the wealthiest people in the city lived in this area. By the 1920s, um, this one corner had within it 186 business and what became known as a city within a city. And so what you had at that point was this thriving business district with residential areas around it. One of the people that was involved here at that time was a young animator and a few of his co-workers named Walt Disney. He lived right next door to us at this building. Uh, as a matter of fact, I used to tell people that in our um, church services, sometimes when we had church here, we would sometimes see a great, great, great grand mouse of Mickey Mouse that would walk around in our building. Yeah, I also remember it being very difficult to uh, keep the mice out of the holy bread in the church because there was definitely a sense of guilt if you ever put out a, a mousetrap. And so <laughs> yeah, exactly. You know, the, the city would come in and tell you that you've got to make sure everything is secure. And then every time you think about the mice, you're thinking about I'm killing Mickey Mouse's grandson. So <laughs> yeah, it's difficult. So, so in this area, there were a lot of ethnic communities that began to move around us. 
There was um, synagogues close by. There was a Catholic, strong Catholic community. There was uh, the Annunciation Greek Orthodox Church. And then um, there was a, um, a Paseo Baptist uh, down the road. And so it was Rabbi Samuel Meyerberg, who was from B'nai Yehuda Temple and um, the pastor of Paseo Baptist at that time, D.H. Holmes, they joined together to fight this very strong political boss and receive death threats. And it was, uh, that was in the 1930s, early 40s. So I mean, it's very rich history. But then the thing that, that happened that a lot of people hadn't known about till just, you know, about 2000 was the history of racially restrictive covenants. And J.C. Nichols, who um, was known in Kansas City for the, the Country Club Plaza and J.C. Nichols Parkway and the tremendous amount of investments, uh, had begun to develop suburbs. And so the, these suburban communities were open to anybody except with this phrase, anybody can move here except those that are not part of the white race. Well, that particular phrase was not removed from these racially restrictive covenants until 2000. All that time it had been part of our legacy here. Kevin Fox Gotham uh, wrote a book called Race, Real Estate and Uneven Development about the history of Troost Avenue and the example of hypersegregation that had happened in Kansas City. And it was a collaboration between the real estate, the insurance, the banking, and the school districts, basically to cause the others to move out and to prosper, but to keep the black community segregated and isolated. Well, and that, so was, that was reinforced by federal law also with redlining and where they would loan money. And it wasn't only J.C. Nichols. It was here locally. It was also Crow Development and the development of Leewood. And it just seems like it kept getting more and more and more restricted to where they would exclude not only you know, African-Americans, but it was Jews. And then it was Syrian people of Syrian origin and on and on. And was that sort of a legal way of getting around the desegregation clauses that were passed or the laws that were enacted at the federal level or why was why well, was the, because no. 1954 brown versus board of education and the desegregating the schools they found mm -hmm. that was this other way to do it to try to get around it and um, this we grew up in kansas city at 78th and paseo and i remember to her credit my mom when this man came through to try to block bust our neighborhood which was to try to say I heard, uh, you know, some black families are moving in. You know, you might want to consider moving over here. And she, from an Irish Catholic background, just got up and told the guy off, how dare you? Those are human beings. And so, I mean, that was a very powerful thing to hear from my mom because it was uh, a counter to, you know, the, the, other, the other part of my family tradition. Right. Nevertheless, back to this story about Troost. Um, because we were on the east side of Troost, and because of the fact that we were planted right here on 31st and Troost, we began to study the history and to discover the slave plantation, the Native American experience. Um, there was a group of us that had been invited to participate in what was called the Race Action Committee that was sponsored by um, the Kaufman Foundation. And Fred Culver and Ray Peterson invited us to come down with them. And so we were sitting around talking what could happen to be able to help facilitate this. So in one of our meetings with, with Thelma, with her brother and with others, um, Ray said, why don't we shut down Troost and have a party? And so it just caught on. So we decided to have the Troost Festival. And this would have been back in 2004. And so we ended up having a day where we had blues, jazz, reggae, gospel, artists, uh, booths, all these people just celebrating the beauty and the diversity around just people. 
and we became known as this one group asked Ray, well, what are you guys called? She said, I don't know, we're just truce folks. So that became the, the name of the group. But the reason I mention this is because of the fact that we specifically wanted to change truce from a racial dividing line to a gathering place. And so there were two resolutions that had been passed. I think it was 2004, 2005. It was to acknowledge the pain that was caused by displacing the Native Americans and cheating basically the Osage out mm -hmm. of the, the land that they had. And talking about the, the lack of community that we now have and the lack of respect for the environment. And we invited them to come back and to help us rebuild a sense of community. The entire city council, the mayor, all signed off on this. And the representative of the Osage Nation came from um, Oklahoma to receive that. And a number of the nations of the Native American people after that regarded 31st and Troost as a holy place because of the fact that that had been acknowledged, that, that people had actually um, acknowledged the pain that had been caused and a beginning healing. And the second thing was the next year was the Porter Slave Plantation to actually honor the enslaved persons that had worked that plantation to cultivate those fields, to be able to honor them for the unheard of work that had been done so that we could be able to, re to restore that. And I mention that because those to me are part of the acts of repentance that we can do, recognizing the pain of the past, recognizing how we can actually then begin to move beyond it to be able to build a different kind of community together. And I see that as a big part of our work. Well, what you're talking about, this word acknowledgement, I think is something that we skip over a lot. Talk about why it's important, not just to address kind of the needs of people who now are suffering from the legacy of slavery or the legacy of broken treaties or the legacy of blockbusting, redlining, gerrymandering, why do we need to acknowledge it? Kind of moving kind of at a simpler level, Father, for, for us, not necessarily just in sort of religious terms, but in a broader con uh, context, why do we need to acknowledge these things? Why can't we just sort of address poverty and move on? Well, I haven't only been a priest. I was also a therapist. And in trauma work, one of the things that you find is that unacknowledged or unexplored trauma will tend to be repeated. And if we don't face our societal traumas and these painful places that have, have been kind of swept under the rug and brushed aside, we'll continue to repeat it. And in order for us to be able to move beyond this, we need to look at it, face it, and then be able to figure out creative ways to move together to create a, a society that, like it said, extract the precious from the worthless. Let's hold on to those things that we have that's been given to us that are precious, but let's go, let's let go of those things that are painful and hurtful so that we can be able to be a different kind of community. And if we don't examine our societal traumas, we obviously will tend to repeat them. Yeah, you know, I think a lot about how powerful it is when someone comes to you who has hurt you and says, hey, I realized that I did this thing and I'm really sorry. And sometimes just that acknowledgement, it can be years later, um, you know, while it doesn't make up for or replace um, maybe some of the losses that have taken place or the pain that's taken place, I can think about many times where that's been the beginning of a reconciliation, a beginning of a healing, not just in the relationship between myself and another person, but really in my heart. Um, when somebody comes to you and says, hey, look, I know this happened. And um, just that simple act of naming it somehow begins to open up pathways for healing. When you think about trauma, Father Alexi, do you feel like the trauma is not just inflicted upon the oppressed, but do you think that there's trauma that happens to the oppressor as well? I mean, very specifically, if there is trauma 
and since there is trauma that is carried by the black community or uh, now the Latino community who's watching people at our border be imprisoned, or I think about people uh, of Asian descent who had grandparents and great grandparents interned in, in camps. Right. That's obviously creating trauma. But is there trauma that's inhibiting the oppressor from growth as well? Well, you know, I, I mean, I, I'm a Christian monk. Because of that, my framework is very much from Jesus Christ. And he, and he one time said, if you didn't see, you would have um, no, no sin. But because you say we see, your sin remains. And it's like, if we say that's not in us, then the, we actually have the greater problem. Because the fact that this, this whole reality of what's going to keep being passed on to people in a hurtful way will never be dealt with. And the, the whole reality of um, the Sermon on the Mount and the, the teaching of Christ is to take the lowly place, to look within, to face yourself. And if we don't deal with that, Lord have mercy. Because that means that we're in the, the really the, the, the greater problem. Um, when you look at how the Lord dealt with the, what he called the, the Pharisees and the hypocrites, he was far more severe with them than he was the broken person on the street. And that's because the fact that it, it took uh, a harder kind of uh, word to break the strong rock that had been in their heart. And so I think given this time, we have to realize that there's, that this is, there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And we, we can't um, assume that the, the person that's the weaker has the responsibility to deal with this. I, I think it's important. I'm just, just going to say this. I know we need to wrap up. But I think I, it's very important to remember the analogies that are used in the New Testament, like the body of Christ. St. Paul said, the head can't say to the foot, I have no need of thee. And he actually talked about the parts that were hurting, they would give more abundant honor to. And that idea of preferring the part that's wounded was part of early Christian culture. Uh, the Church of Rome in the fourth century, they spent um, their money on behalf of the poor. They had 1,500 distressed persons regularly on their roll. And when the early Christians were having a situation of discrimination in Acts 6, the, the Jewish community was split up into the Hebrew-speaking community and the Greek-speaking community. And when they found out that the Greek-speaking widows were being neglected, the apostles went to them and they said to the Greek-speaking people, choose from among yourselves uh, those leaders that can be, be able to take care of this problem. And so as a result, they were immediately able to take care of that. And so as a result, I mean, in that context, you realize Greek lives mattered. And when we talk about the problems that we're dealing today, we have to realize black lives do matter. And when people try to politicize this and only put it in terms of these uh, political polarization kind of mentality, they are, they're missing the point. We've got to move into this at a much greater level, and that's a level of the heart, so that we can be able to truly be a healing presence in this world and in our nation. And may it begin with us. Amen. I, I want to ask you, I, I want to go over just a little bit in our time, because I, we don't always get the opportunity to talk with you, and I'm really grateful for the time that you've given us today. Um, I want to talk a little bit about something that I think is difficult for us today, juxtaposing just a little bit. Okay. You know, you're obviously a Christian priest. You're an Orthodox Christian monastic. You've dedicated your life to prayer and 
um, in an Orthodox Christian context. But we live in a very pluralistic society. We live in a world there are so many different faith traditions and people who embrace different ways of life. Um, I know a lot of our audience who listens um, have expressed at various times to me that there's a tension. They might have a particular religious or political point of view, and they want to do good. They want to enter in, but it's difficult to hold their belief in antinomy with opposing beliefs, and sometimes it inhibits them from feeling comfortable moving forward. When you started the work at Reconciliation Services, you felt that it was important to do two things, if I understood. Number one, you felt that it was important to uphold the Orthodox Christian understanding of personhood, of dignity, community, and advocacy, that every person was made in, in God's image. But you also felt, as you expressed it to me and have other places, that it was important to um, face the world with open hands and to not um, proselytize as your first movement. You tried to really meet people where they were. And that that's not just a good social work principle. That was something that you really embraced, as I understand it, because of your faith. Can you walk us through that a little bit? When, when we are challenged so much, maybe even people listening who don't share uh, the Christian faith, maybe they're challenged by your use of a lot of religious references. How are we to think about our opposing beliefs, our need for civil discourse? How do you do that? How do you reconcile those things, Father? I'm not sure that that question is as sharp as it should be, but hopefully you get where I'm going. Yeah. Well, first you, you were true and accurate in terms of the the idea from our perspective, um, each human being is an icon, an image of God. And uh, in the text of the original view of human beings and the scriptures of, of the tr Christian and Jewish tradition in Genesis, it said that man was made in the image and likeness of God. That Greek word is ikon or icon. And so for us, when you have a human being in front of you, they're worthy of veneration because the fact that that is a human being and we're all worthy of that respect that comes from that divine origin. But secondly, it's important to realize that this is not about force, it's about freedom. And the, the force concept throughout religious history has always backfired. And Yet when you see Jesus, he always loved people as they were. He would call them forward. He would call them to uh, make changes, but he never stopped loving them as they were. And part of that came from um, this, this idea that if we are going to accept people as they are, that it's not up for us to force them into some kind of change, but rather to be able to be with them and to share with them. And if they are able to receive something good from what we're doing with them, great. But if it doesn't happen that way, then the example that Jesus gave was he makes rain to fall on all people, no matter how they are, good or bad, you know? And so for us then, what you find is that there's this, what the apostle John said, that he's the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Every human being already has been given that light with inside of them. And we're not to like force our wills upon them. We're rather to respect them, to love them, and to be with them. And then to gently see where it goes from there. By us walking together, some might be brought into a community where we, where we share together in the same faith, but many won't be. But along the way, they can be able to, to be with us in such a way that they can recognize by being together what it is to be with an Orthodox Christian, what it is to be with somebody that calls himself after the name of Christ. And it's a sad thing because I think that it's been given a very bad rap. The number of people that in the name of Jesus 
have done horrible things to other people. And I think it's very important that we do all that we can to rebuild bridges, to be able to heal people, and to be able to restore and point people back to the original pattern that was given to us. Yeah, thank you for sharing your heart on that. Well, I do want to wrap up today, although I would love to talk to you for another hour, but um, I get a lot of people who listen to this and who write in that say they'd really like to begin the journey to become a social leader. They're inspired by the life and the witness of people like yourself and Thelma and others. If you could give a couple of pieces of advice for those who want to learn to increase their social impact and become social leaders in their own way, what advice would you give them? What are one or two things that they need to begin doing in order to become social leaders? I um, thank you for that question. The fact that I was was early on given that impression that Rollin was my teacher, was to set aside the pre-existing ideas that you have of who is a teacher and who's not. Try to accept the person in front of you as your teacher and try to learn everything that you can from that person. The second is the principle that Jesus gave of, of a leader is a servant. And it's in that concept, people often think about the idea of a pyramid, the top of the, the pyramid as a leader, but the reversal of that is a tree. And the trunk of a, of a tree supports the branches that goes out like that. And if we're going to be true leaders, we have to be there to support, to encourage, and to allow the others to be able to get the credit and the, the honor, and that's our real goal is to cause those other branches to flourish and prosper. So I would say those two things are a good place to start. Thanks, Father. I appreciate you being with us. Is there anything else that you want to share with us today before we wrap up? It's a joy to see here, to be here, to see Thelma on the, the wall of uh, Thelma's kitchen and to see this idea of really people gathering together to eat with one another. Um, in the not too distant future, this virus is going to be over. People are going to be able to be much closer to each other. So in the midst of it, let's do everything that we can to support each other and love each other. Thank you, Father. Thank you for your example. And hang with me for a minute as we wrap up. Thank you so much for your time, Father. Thank you for letting me come today. Absolutely. Well, friends, thank you for spending yet another hour here on the Social Leader Podcast. I hope you found it very inspiring. I know that every time I get to visit with Father Alexi, um, I learn something. Hopefully you learned something today as well. Father Alexi and his wife Thelma founded Reconciliation Services, and really it was their love as an interracial couple um, as a, a couple that came from very different socioeconomic backgrounds, from very different life trajectories. Um, it was that love and the suffering that they endured as that couple, both personally and from family, as well as just living in the world at that time. Uh, it's that suffering that really forged the DNA of who Reconciliation Services is. And we really do look to them and to, and to Thelma, especially of blessed memory, for our inspiration for Thelma's Kitchen and the kind of hospitality and love that we attempt with your support to be able to share with the whole community. We believe that reconciliation racially and economically is possible. And if you were to sum it up, our real work is to try to help make that reconciliation more possible today than it was yesterday. And we can't do that without you. So by the way, if you liked this podcast, then I have a favor to ask of you. Would you please like this show? Whether you're listening to it on Spotify or YouTube or on Facebook, please share it out with everybody in your network. Please take a minute to hit that bell button if you're on YouTube so that you know when we go live. And if you hit that like button, it's going to really help us share this program and the lessons that we're trying to bring forward about social leadership 
with people all over the world. And hey, real quickly before we begin, if you uh, before we end rather, if you are in Kansas City, I'm super excited to show you this. This is the brand new Thelma's Kitchen box lunch box. And if you're listening and you can't see it online, it's a it's a beautiful recyclable, uh, you know. Uh, beautiful lunch. And we just launched thelmasboxlunch.org. And if you are in the Kansas City area and you are ordering a box lunch for yourself or for your company or for a meeting, whatever you're doing, we would love for you to go to thelmasboxlunch.org. This one lunchbox actually helps us to provide thousands of people every single year trauma therapy, social services, and other essential supports that they need in order to move forward. And then when we do that together, we're helping to reduce the most extreme poverty in our city. If you're outside of Kansas City, I encourage you to go to thelmasboxlunch.org. Check out what we're, what we're doing here. Maybe it'll inspire you for something there at home. But once again, thank you so much for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed the time with Father Alexi Alschult. And until next time, I look forward to seeing you again. Let's together learn to be social leaders. 